I've just travelled across London on the underground and I'm here at Old Street Station, which is not the place you'd imagine someone making a natural history podcast would come. In fact, the corner of the pavement that I'm currently standing has a very distinct smell of human urine, which is lovely. If you do look closer, you will find a few hidden gems. However, you do have the Columbia Road Flower Market, there's the Hackney City Farm, and if you can go back in time, you could go back to Bethnal Green when it was common land and farmed by the local inhabitants. That said, it's perhaps therefore fitting that we're here just across from Curtain Road, which was named after the Curtain Theatre, an Elizabethan theatre, where not only could you see Shakespeare's plays, you could also go and see bear baiting and dog fighting and... We're in this neck of the woods for something some would consider equally macabre and others would see as slightly more joyful. Anyway, we'll leave that up to you to decide. We're off to talk to Polly Morgan, who is an incredible artist and specialises in taxidermy. Anyway, this is Trees of Crowd. Thanks for tuning in and I'll speak to you at the end. In the depth of the forest and all and welcome to Trees of Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From lepidopterist and etcher to canine stick fetcher, I'm going to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, we're out and about again, this time in one of the trendiest parts of the East End of London. I'm at the Hicks Art Gallery in Shoreditch to meet artist and taxidermist Polly Morgan. Her artwork is inventive, highly covetable, and not without controversy. Polly has been dismantling the traditional guise of taxidermy for over a decade, been championed by the likes of Banksy, and her latest exhibition, Are They All Yours?, is an unsettling collaboration with multidisciplinary artist Robert Cooper, which considers technology's intrusion on reality. Polly, hello, and welcome to Trees of Crowd. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you here, and also to have little Bruce as well. Yes. So if, if you hear gurgling through this interview, it is because... Not me. It's, it's Polly <laughs> dribbling. Uh, That's one side of my neck. We, we have a... How old is Bruce? Four months. Hey, Bruce. Say hello. We're in a room full of taxidermied snakes, and all I'm looking at is the baby. You can't look at anything else when there's no, babies No, it's impossible, around, those big eyes. They're, they're like a fire, I think. If there's a fire in the room, you stare at it. It's the same as a baby. <laughs> so I, I guess where I want to start, before we get into who you are, why you are, and what you're doing, is we're in the Tram Shed restaurant, which has the Damien Hurst upstairs. Mm-hmm. It's a, a calf with a cockerel on top. Or even a full-sized cow, maybe. Big old, big old cow. I think it's a big cow. <laughs> big old cow. It? I guess my question is, when people think of animals and art, they normally think of half a cow or a formaldehyde shark. And are you bored of that? I mean, you're a different school of thinking. I, mean, I think definitely Damien Hurst's work at the time. You have to consider everything in the time that it yeah. appeared, I think. And I think... If all of that stuff was coming out now, then maybe it would feel a little boring. But the fact is, there was nothing like that at the time. So I, rem- I did art A level, and I remember just being sort of—I didn't honestly didn't know how to react to it. As no. someone who always loved animals, I was like, mm. I don't, I don't quite get it. And I guess I still sort of, I still, I still have that very palpable energy going through when I see his work. I think it has less power now, 
because we've seen it done quite a few times. But I think just the, I think the best, the most effective, powerful one of his works for me was the shark. Yeah. Just the, it was just this simplicity of just putting the shark in the tank in the middle of the gallery, and it was really yeah. beautifully done. It's sort of reimagining Duchamp had, with a ready-made, but just with the natural world. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I've nothing against any of his work really. I, I think he's done some really great things, but I think that. I don't think they even needed to be split in half, a lot of them. I just think the most effective ones were just something stuck in a tank and put in the middle of a gallery. And at the time, that had just never been done, so no. it was quite shocking. first time I encountered your work was at the Horniman Gallery, as I said when oh, I yeah. first approached you. For those that don't know, the Horniman's a, gallery, uh, well, a museum down in southeast London, Dulwich. Forest Hill. Yeah. yeah, And it's an old, predominantly an old collection of stuffed walruses and moth-eaten tigers and the like. <laughs> and I remember seeing this tiny little piece in a in a display case at the front, which was uh, an egg standing on its end with a pencil leaning against yeah. it, and a little, little chick, chick sort of lolloping its head over the top. Like, like I don't know, it was, a, it was a journey. It was the first time I considered actually what taxidermy was, and secondly, whether or not it was art in the first place. Good. Well, I mean, I think the, the reason that I started doing what I was doing was because I loved taxidermy, but I didn't feel like I could bring anything new to it. There were so many... There was a sort of history of taxidermy, and taxidermists, and they were all making fairly similar... To the untrained eye, they were making similar work. Mm -hmm. And that's not to put them down, because some of them are highly skilled, and if you know about taxidermy, you can see differences between them. But for those that don't, they generally would mimic the natural environment of the animal and put them in a cabinet, and they did it very well, and I just... I I couldn't add anything to that at all. But what I did want to do, I, I sort of felt like, as a medium, it was a bit untapped in that... Of course, there was the likes of Damien Hirst and there's Tim Noble and Sue Webster and there's Maurizio Catalan. There's, there's lots of contemporary artists who've used taxidermists to great effect and mm-hmm. taxidermy to great effect in their work, but they didn't consistently use it. And I felt that as a material, it was really due a kind of reinvention and bringing up to date, really. You and that's kind of what I sought to do, was to try and kind of couple it with more contemporary... You say you've always been interested in taxidermy. I guess that sort of takes us back to where you're from and what you did. You grew up on your farm, is that right? It wasn't strictly a farm, but my dad, yeah, he'd, he would rent farmland and he would work with goats and llamas and various things. So I didn't actually work with goats as colleagues or work with um, well, he'd, he'd all sorts of things. <laughs> he, never, he was very sentimental, my father, so he'd never kill an animal. It would always be for their fur. Okay. Um, you know, so for goats, it was for the wool. Sure. Um, and the same with llamas, actually. Uh, and he would... He was quite an eccentric, obsessive person, so I think he didn't necessarily always know quite what the end game was, but sure. he, he collected animals. Did he make a living off the animals, or was it... A, that was the aim. It was a pet, literally a pet <laughs> project. Uh, yes. No, the aim was to make money, and I'm sure he did at times, but it wasn't always the end result. I think a lot of the time they just ate money, but he, he, he loved being with animals. Being the goats, they were just yeah. there chewing when, when through. Yeah, when he them. died, we were, around, we were going through his house, and through his, all of his belongings, sorting things out. And we just realised that every photograph we found of him from the age of nothing, he was with an animal in a photograph. And he was an only child, so I think maybe that has something to do with it, that sure. he'd seek solace and sort of friendships with animals. And he definitely passed that on to me. Well, I think uh, there's probably a through line with everyone I've interviewed so far is this childhood with animals. I mean, you must have had a million pets then. Like, Yeah, I mean, they, didn't, they weren't even really pets. I just sort of saw them as family. We really did have... I didn't. I remember because I was the youngest of three girls, and we had these two dogs. And I just remember thinking that they were my little brothers. Really, I used to get annoyed with them in the same way, and sort of vie for attention with my parents in the same way. And we'd have whenever there was a sick goat, it would come in the house and it would sleep in the dog bed. We had a budgie flying around. We had 
cats, fish. It's sort of the opposite of my childhood. We didn't have any pets growing up. We eventually got left a Yorkshire Terrier and a Will. Um, but that was, as, that was the first. Yeah, it was a lovely old lady who fed this dog Pip on, basically on heart from the butcher and uh, Dundee cake, basically. <laughs> but up until then, the, the best pet I had was a dead mole I found in the garden. And I put it in like an old sort of Nesquik chocolate milkshake box with a few holes in the top and would look at it occasionally and be <laughs> really pleased that I, like my school friends, had a, had a pet. Oh, it's a bit sad. It's a little sad. A little scary as well if you tell it to the wrong person. It's fascinating because children are dying to pick up and stroke and look at animals and they can't do it most of the time. I spent my life trying to grab animals that would run away when they saw me approaching. And the amazing thing about a dead animal is you can actually examine it and get to know it and and look at it properly. And of course it's a fascinating thing. It's It's like what we were talking about earlier with the Horniman and their exhibition of animals. As a child you go to these things, whether it's the Natural History Museum or the Horniman, and you just see a diorama of, of dead creatures and you don't link it to death, you link it to life, you link yeah, it exactly. to animals existing. I mean, I've never seen my work as being about death, I've always thought of it as being about life, but logistically you have to wait for the animal to die before you can skin it, I'm not going to skin a living animal. Which I guess is what <laughs> a lot of people want to know about, so, is how you source them, but it's... I mean, well, yeah, I, they're all just... They, I made a decision early on, I didn't want to, to work with ones that had died naturally or, or unpreventably, I say, so... Sometimes it'll have been hit by a car or, or fly into a window. And, the, and I have used the byproduct of farming a few times. So there's, sure. when farmers cull crows, um, they literally, I think they just burn them or throw them away. So I've taken a few of those before from them. But I've never... I wanted crows. Yeah, I've never... It seems preposterous to get something killed for my work because, A, I mean, it's just very perverse to kill something and then try to make it look alive again. It yeah. goes completely against what I'm trying to do. And it's lazy. There's absolutely no need to. There's things dying all the time. It's just a question of putting your, trying to find the people who are going to be there at the point of death and asking them to hang on to something for you. So I have vets give me um, animals sometimes that haven't been picked up or that they, you know, animals, wild animals have been brought into them that they've been unable to save. I, I'm working a lot with snakes at the moment, so I'll contact snake breeders and... What they have to do if something dies, they they tend to freeze them and they collect up a number of them over years, and then they have to pay to get them incinerated because obviously you can't just throw away a dead snake. Sure. Maybe they bury them or something, but particularly city-based breeders don't do that. So it's quite an organic process. You know, I'm doing them a favour. They're not they're not yeah, yeah. having to get rid of them. They just put them in the freezer for me, and then they pass them on to me. And I see it as a kind of form of recycling, really. So my understanding is that you studied English literature at university. I did, yeah. How does an English literature graduate get into taxidermy? I was just curious. I mean, I think really... Were you doing it in the taxidermy society no, at university? No, I wasn't. Actually, I wasn't doing it while I was at university. My university years were a bit strange. I never really engaged much at university. I think it's something about coming to university in London isn't as easy anyway because you don't really have that campus maybe a little more so now but there was never a kind of campus vibe there everyone was scattered all over the place we'd just meet up for lectures I didn't really bond with anyone there particularly Uh, and I ended up working in a bar and restaurant in Shoreditch um, just to help pay for my rent Um, and Shoreditch back then was completely unrecognisable from what it is now I think there was only two bars there this is pretty much the first one that opened up that was considered quite hip and serving, they were serving absinthe and they had a good chef and you know, it wasn't just like a dive bar mm-hmm. and there was lots of artists living here at the time because the buildings were so cheap 
and um, they would drink and eat there and, and work there behind the bar and there was just sort of a, a gang of a So you met people so who worked in this field or? Yeah, just I mean like everybody who worked behind the bar, the, even the, the guy who owned it was a um, was trained as an architect and designer and uh, all of the young British artists, YBAs were all drinking there at the time, uh, the people who were setting up galleries in the East End, there was only a few galleries in the East End at that point but it was becoming a real hub for art. It was, it was really, it was kind of like a common room for people in the arts and I just felt so much more at home there than I did at university and I think in hindsight I should have studied art but it wasn't really, it, was, it wasn't something that we really had in our family, it wasn't sure. something that was particularly encouraged at school and I wanted to come to London and I was a good, I was fairly good at writing and interested in literature so it just seemed the natural thing to do. But so how long before you acted upon that and actually went down this, this particular road? Um, I was 23 I think when I had my first lesson so I would have been a couple of years post-graduation. I, after I graduated, I, I kind of had this vague idea that I wanted to write. But I, I, I wasn't a bad writer, but I struggled with it. It would take me a long time to write something, and I would really, I'd completely chew all my nails off in the process. It didn't come to me that naturally. And I did a photography course. I used to draw a little like with, with inks and um, sculpt a bit with clay. I was just always keen to do something creatively with my time, but I couldn't really work out what that was. I can't quite remember exactly what the catalyst... I think the catalyst really was the fact that I had moved into a flat above the bar because I'd been made manager when I graduated. Okay. And um, I wanted to furnish the flat, and I was looking to furnish it with taxidermy, but I had a very strict idea of what I wanted it to look like. Most of them I wanted to look dead. I didn't want them in cases. I was describing what I wanted to someone, and it was so specific. She said, well, you're not going to find that. Why don't you make it yourself? Had you gone up to the shop on Essex Road? I knew of it, but I also... I think think he was the first person I emailed, but he is notoriously uh, unfriendly and inhospitable to anyone interested in... I don't think I've ever seen that shop open. No, it is always open, but it's always got a grill in the front. Well, you have to ring a bell to get in, because I think he's he's had his window smashed by animal rights activists. uh, So if he was the first person you contacted, where did he send you? He literally just wrote one line back saying... Go away. You can't... uh, Our studios aren't open to the public... And then at the end, he's just had, like, the signature strip was get stuffed at the bottom. So it was perfect. It was just like, I was like, you might as well have just sent me that. And I don't believe, he's not a taxidermist anyway, as far as I know. No. He gets other people to do it. It was very early days of the internet, so I wasn't online very often. But I remember Googling, and most things led me to America. And then I found the hunting? They've got such yeah, a Yeah, big... it's very different in America. It's, it's, such a, it's a real byproduct of, of hunting. And loads of people, you know, you get, like, kids doing it in the garage. And like, it's it's... You get a lot of hobby taxidermists there, and okay. a lot of small, most small towns still have a taxidermist, I think, in America. Okay. Um, certainly did when I was looking, and I, I vaguely considered going to America, but I didn't have funds, and I had a job, uh, and then I found someone in Scotland, George Jamieson, who'd been doing it for forty years, and he just had some taxidermy for sale, and he took commissions, and then there was just a tiny little line at the bottom that said that he did he would teach for 150 pounds a day and you'd get to keep your specimen afterwards so i contacted so him he provided the animals you turned up gave yeah, him the you money told him what you wanted to do gave you a scalp actually 150 pounds for a stuffed bird back then was That's still right. quite cheap yeah. and, and i got to do it myself so i booked a lesson with him and stayed with a friend who lived in edinburgh and i just did one day because that was the only time i could take off work and we did the most rushed pigeon <laughs> that i've ever done and he ended up finishing it off for me and which is still, to this day, probably the best bird I've ever done because he's such a good taxidermist. Sure. 
Um, but I came back on the train that day feeling really exhilarated and full of inspiration for what I wanted to do. And so was that the start of a relationship between the two of you that went on for some time? Yes, yeah, we're still in touch now. I haven't been to see him now probably for... Certainly since I had my first son two and a half years ago. So three or four years since I've seen him. But we, we talk on the phone. And How does he feel about seeing where you've gone, from starting with just a relatively traditional pigeon to... Well, we've got mm. snakes here with frankfurters on them. <laughs> He's always been very supportive and very sweet about my work, but, I mean, he, he'll be the first to admit he's got no idea what I'm up to and why. <laughs> he's, he's a very traditional taxidermist. For traditional taxidermists, the, the most important thing is to be true to the animal and try and get as mm -hmm. close a likeness as possible, and that has never really been my aim. I've done all of these things that are, are probably sacrilege to a traditional taxidermist, but he's always been very kind about it. And the man who I interviewed last week, Mark Frith, who draws oak trees, he's got his exhibition on at uh, Kew Gardens, and he is the first to admit that his work is not botanical drawings. They are portraits, they are stylized, there is something about them that is not realistic. And through that, as he says, it's a portrait, he captures the soul of it, he does something with it to tell a story rather mm -hmm. than just to replicate. So I guess my question really is, is all taxidermy art? I mean, if it's the intention of just trying to recreate nature in a traditional taxidermy state, or... I mean, the, the problem with these conversations is, is you often end up going, what is unintentionally art? insulting taxidermists. taxidermists, I think. Yeah, which is really unfair because... I've seen how far they've worked and how dedicated they are, and they're so skilled, far more skilled than I'll, I'll ever be. And for some reason, I think when we say something's art, it feels like we're elevating it somehow to mm -hmm. some to above craft, which is not... I don't agree with that, but I, I, but I would say that all taxidermy isn't art. No, I think it is a craft, and I think it, I have the utmost respect for it as that. But, um, so does Bruce, There's apparently. no... <laughs> But they're not trying to convey an idea through there, yeah. necessarily. Um, it, very often they're working within a, a well-trodden path of tradition. And I, I just think the aims are very different sure. of, a, of a taxidermist. Um, which is why I've never really called myself a taxidermist. Partly out of respect for taxidermists, because sure. I don't do... I, I, I'm the first to admit I don't do as good a job as, as, some of, as many taxidermists working. One of the pieces that I've been enthralled by of yours was Harbour, which hmm. is... A fox that is being grappled, molested, destroyed by an octopus, mm -hmm. and then with birds. I'm not sure what they are. Well, they're wrens, actually. They're the wrens. idea with that, yeah, that, that was part of a show I had called Endless Plains, which is what the Serengeti means, uh, Endless Plains, and I'd been to the Serengeti. Um, I'd just been on a safari there, and I'd seen, obviously, the whole thing was incredible. We saw the, um, the migration of the wildebeest, but I was fascinated by the dead animals too because of what I do and mm. quite often we'd see a carcass dying miles away and I'd, I'd ask the driver to go, can we go over and have a look at that and they all thought I was a bit strange <laughs> but we'd get to these carcasses and um, they'd be hollowed out by vultures um, and they literally, they were amazing because they'd been dried by the sun and completely hollowed out inside because the vultures apparently go in through the stomach where mm -hmm. it's the softest, it's the softest point yeah. and there were these kind of caverns inside them and I was really inspired by this and you and wondered I, what would happen if octopuses lived in no, sorry, the I'm, urban centres. Of... No, I'm going. I'm actually. No, no. I'm, I'm getting to that by a very, very circuitous route. But <laughs> I then came back to England, and then I got very ill almost immediately. And it turned out I had a very late diagnosed um, burst appendix, so I nearly died. I had peritonitis, and I was rushed to hospital. 
And um, by the time I got there, I had gangrene and all these infections. And I, in the couple of weeks that I was recovering in hospital, I was just a, had very little to do other than think. And I became quite fascinated by the idea that my body had become host to all these parasites, essentially. You know, when you've got gangrene, you've, kind of, you're, you've got a lot of bugs in your body, yes, effectively. You've got, a de- you've got a dead part. That, that something had died within me, which is what I found quite interesting, that a, a part of my body had died and rotted inside me sure. while I was alive. And I started thinking about the pest-host relationship, and I ended up... My next show was called Endless Plains, which was... The Serengeti. The Serengeti. And the idea of this kind of endless cycle of something dying and something else feeding on that dead body and living. And uh, that work was kind of an illustration of that, in that the fox was made to look dead, and the octopus was looking almost like it sort of strangled it and yeah. really killed it. But the octopus tentacles were up in the air and those little kind of suckers on it were made to look like but the, the idea was that they looked like buds from a plant okay. and the birds were pollinating them sure. so their beaks were inside them and the idea being that the pollination then goes on to create new life for the cycle and everything yes so it was kind of an illustration of the cycle of life and death basically that was a piece that you obviously made after you were sort of relatively relatively well known what would you say was the piece or pieces that made people sit up like why do people go this lady who's taking our leftover crows from farmers is the person we need to really focus on well actually one of my very earliest pieces kind of helped catapult me into at least like an exhibiting artist i guess which was um it was a little rat curled up in a champagne glass kind of on the champagne bowl glasses Mm -hmm. And it was, I suppose it was a kind of take on surrealist fairy cup thing. It looked almost like a scoop of fairy ice cream in, in the um, glass. I was so naive back then, I really had no idea that anything was ever going to be exhibited. Or it really, I was just doing a lot of these things for myself. And um, Did they start that abstract, the early pieces? Was it? Were you always yeah. leaning towards something more theatrical? Yeah, I think so. I think that could definitely safely be said. But they got more abstract. I mean, they, at least the animals generally were intact even if they looked dead I would they were kind of figurative pieces whereas now a lot of the stuff that I make is completely abstract so with the snakes they're kind of like these looped forms the Gordian knot like kind of anyway that work was picked up the gallery showed it at um, they don't it doesn't exist anymore but there used to be the zoo art fair which showed alongside the freeze art fair and it sold very early before the fair had even opened and there was coverage in the art newspaper about it and and I think that was what sort of piqued Banksy's interest, who asked me to then go on and do some shows that he was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that became one of the best-known pieces, maybe. And then I, I went on to do this other works called Still Birth, which was a little chick that, again, looked dead, and it, was, it looked like it was kind of floating off, um, but the string was tied around it with a balloon, which looked like it was floating off, but it was under a dome. Um, and that became a reproduced image sure. of mine as well but there's yeah there's been a few things over the years there's also a, um, a recreation of a Victorian flying machine that I made which was probably the biggest work I've ever made which is a really big installation piece where was um, that displayed? that was shown at an exhibition it was a group exhibition in um, a church on Marylebone Road one Marylebone I think it's called very big group exhibition held during freeze that got quite a big attendance so that I, yeah, images of that were reproduced quite widely, and then it was bought by a German collector. Went to a museum out there. So you mentioned the snakes a moment ago. What was it that made you go down that more sort of abstracted route, going down those knots, the twists? 
I mean, so much of your early work, I guess, is you could want you could anthropomorphize it if you wanted to. Well, there's a kind of narrative there before, and I, yeah. I wanted to get away from that. I think I don't think I'd. Well, really, what happened was I. There was a strange disconnect between me and my work that started to appear in around 2007 or 8 or something, I think, where I found that the way that it was perceived... Was not what you was intended. ...was very different to how it intended, yeah. And, and also the kind of people who were attracted to my work. I mean, I'm not, I'm not arrogant enough to kind of to care or to want to dictate who likes my work or what they think or how they interpret it I think people should be free to interpret it how they like but I noticed that there was quite a big kind of like gothic element of people who I would say maybe fetishised death who sure. were getting really into my work yeah people imagine a macabre owl overlooking someone in a cobweb ridden yeah and it really wasn't and, and actually that whole kind of Victoriana aesthetic really wasn't my aesthetic and I realised that somehow I needed to get away from that yeah I just I realised that I think what happened was I was making work in 2005, six when I started out. There was a kind of naivety to it, and, and it was... I was kind of harking back a little bit to the Victorian taxidermy period by using domes and these little chandeliers, more as a kind of nod to that, but trying to make it more contemporary. Mm-hmm. And then I, I felt like my work was almost like a sort of parody of early Polly Morgan work, like I was just making work that I felt people expected me to be making as opposed to making the work that I wanted to make. Sure. And I had a kind of... There was a couple of years of just not really liking what I'd been doing and struggling a bit to kind of know where to go from there. And the snakes just felt like a really perfect bridge out of that because they were just a way of me making something that was much more modern-looking. They looked like these kind of modernist-formed, looped forms. I, I felt that you couldn't really foist a narrative onto them in the same way, and they were quite kind of clean, colourful lines. Had you worked with snakes a lot before? I'd never worked with snakes before. I had a couple in my freezer um, <laughs> that I actually never anticipated using. Um, that I just kept them there because I didn't know what else to do with them. And then one day I just got them out of the freezer when I was sort of struggling to feel inspired. I was going through the thing. Quite often when I'm struggling to feel inspired, I'll go through what's in my freezer and I'll look at what I've got and sure. I'll just kind of potter around the studio and play around with things. And um, I pulled some of the snakes out, and they were—they'd frozen in these really beautiful shapes, just naturally, just the way that I placed them in the freezer. One or two of them had gone into these beautiful loop forms, and I pulled it out. And it just reminded me of a kind of like a Henry Moore or something. It mm-hmm. just looked really beautiful. I couldn't even see the head on one of them; it kind of tucked right inside. And it was a bit of a eureka moment when I suddenly thought, "This is like that. This is what I should be doing. It's something really simple and powerful like that." And, and well, I, for an animal that has so much. Um, symbolism and yeah. folk narrative behind it. Well, I was trying to kind of... I, it was quite a challenge for me to, to try and get out, out of that, to try and make something that didn't talk about those things. Yeah. So I would tuck the head inside the body very often because I felt like the head was too confrontational. Sure. As soon as we're faced with a snake, we have a very visceral reaction yeah. to it. Even if it's just the snake in the Disney Robin Hood. It's yeah. Automatically, it's... I, and I, it's, I really it's wanted to be, the works to be talking more about form and colour and and texture rather than about life and death or superstition or whatever it might be. Um, I, my, my father is, is religious, he's a vicar, and so I spent quite a lot of my childhood in Sunday schools and whatever, and there was, uh, there was a guy called Edmund who ran the Sunday school for a bit, and he was doing a course on animals in the Bible. Um, one week we would learn all about donkeys, and then the following week we'd go and see donkeys in a, in a farm, and it was great. And then the next week we were being taught about all the snakes in the Bible, but 
what he had organised for the following week was for Marwell Zoo to come along with loads of pythons and cobras and stuff, and all oh, the wow. kids would get to play with this. And for whatever reason, the the church or the CAB or whoever, some edict came down from the bishop of whoever, wherever, um, and said that it was not appropriate for these kids to spend this time with, oh, really? with wow. snakes. So we all went back to this teacher's house and all played with snakes on his own dime. And I think from that instant forward, I've always sort of removed snakes from any sort of trepidation of narrative. It's always just been nice to sort of... Yeah. They were welcoming, they were friendly. They didn't care about uh, Christianity. They didn't care about <laughs> organised religion. They were something freer from that and something yeah. beautiful. Um, so I've never really had that sort of fear aspect. And I think looking at those knots that you've made, again, maybe it is by removing the head from the, from the visual side of it, you get something that is equally as complex as it is simple, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, mean, I think what I've often tried to do with my work is to try and remove the animal from all of the... from everything that we... all the baggage that we've placed on it. Like, right in the beginning, I worked with pigeons and squirrels and things that we naturally... that, that people will refer to as vermin. And I wanted to make something... Like the rat in the champagne glass, for instance, the, the lady who bought that said that she bought it because she was shocked that she found it so beautiful and she's always been rat phobic mm-hmm. and that was the highest compliment to me because that's kind of what I was trying to do was to try and take it out take, by taking something out of its natural context like that you, you're forced to look at it differently and I feel like you know, it's, it's only us it's only the stories that we tell really that we we put all these these things onto the animals and really it's nice to kind of free them of that and, and just look at them in a, in a formal way I'm going to ask some probably very obvious questions, but questions I want to ask. Do you wash the animals? As in, like, if a rat comes in, do you... Mm, that's interesting. Well, you do, but not immediately. You'll wash it once you've taken... The... I take the skin off um, and clean up, take off all the fat and the flesh from the inside of the skin, and then they get washed before you tan them. Well, actually, no, sorry. With the, with the mammal skin, I would tan it, and then I'd probably wash it. Um, with a bird, I would wash it, and then I would tan it. But, yes, they, they get washed at some point. Okay, second taxidermy question. One of my favourite things about snakes is their skeletons. Mm. Because anyone who's ever seen a snake skeleton just has so much more respect for the creation of that creature than they ever did before. Um, If you don't know what one looks like, go on Google now and and Google snake skeleton. Do Do these snakes in this room still have their skeletons in them? No, no, none of them do. Um... That would require an enormous amount of work because I would have to reattach every single bit. Just yeah, I do, I'm a, I'm in awe of the people who do that. Actually, I can't remember the name of. It. There is a, a word to describe people who reconstruct skeletons, but particularly when it comes to snakes because they've got so many bones. Um, no, there's no need for you to use bones in taxidermy. Some taxidermists will. So for birds, for instance, I would always use the skull because the beak's attached to the skull. Mm-hmm. So you clean the skull up and you keep that. Um, and I, I keep the wing bones and the leg bones, but more as a guide when you're bending the wires um, of the legs so that you can get them in the right place. You don't, you don't require them at all. There's very little taxidermy that would, be, that would use the, the skeleton. Sure. You take the body out and then you recreate the body either by sculpting it with something like wood wool, which is um, very fine straw, which is what I use. Um, it's quite a traditional taxidermy method. Or you, in the case of the snakes, I actually make a cast of the body. Um, so that large one over there, the boa constrictor in the middle, mm-hmm. that's cast in fiberglass. Um, and then uh, that one over there, that milk snake on the plinth, has been cast in rubber. Um, so you make a cast of it and then cover it with the original skin? What I do differently with snakes is I cast the dead snake before I've taken the skin off. 
um, because the skin on a snake is so stretchy, sure. it can stretch over something that it's slightly bigger. Does that mean it automatically takes some of the texture from the cast then as well, so it gives it a bit it can, more Yeah, it can do. Bit. I mean, it depends. If, this, if the skin is very thin, it will, but some of the skins are quite thick, they don't really pick up the texture. But if you were to skin a snake and then cast the body underneath and pull the, the skin over that, it would probably end up a little loose. Um, whereas with, if I was doing, like I did a baby giraffe once and I took the skin off that and then I cast the body, the flayed body underneath the skin and then stretched the skin over it. There's, there's lots of, you sort of learn different techniques different as you're doing it. Different, different things work for different animals. Yeah. Do you often look at a live animal and go, I would do it that way? Uh, well, you look at, I look at live animals all the time and I'm looking at the way they're moving and the way... You just look, it's like when you draw a lot, you, you start to look at things in a very different way. So, yeah, you'll look at I don't know, the way the shoulder would stand up or on, a, on a cat or something, or just, just tiny little details that you wouldn't necessarily notice otherwise if you were One of the it. interviews we've already done was with um, an animator called Astrid Goldsmith, who bizarrely similarly uses the same techniques as you in terms of making a wireframe to construct the creature around it. And we had a big discussion about Stubbs and his anatomy drawings and how through his understanding and comprehension of the biological form of the horse, he can therefore paint and create uh, horses much better. Yeah. It's not simply about observation, it's, it's, it goes a lot deeper and more dynamic. Than oh, that. definitely. I mean, a, a proper, real taxidermist, a really good, accomplished taxidermist, they, they spend a lot of time studying anatomy and drawing anatomy. And, I mean, George, uh, who taught me, he had books and books of anatomical drawings that he'd done, really beautiful ones. And it, I mean, it's, it's definitely the two go hand in hand. You do need to understand anatomy. Do you still draw? Do you still try and? I don't draw a lot. I don't draw in, enough, probably. I do. I saw on your website you're selling watercolors and things. Oh, they are um, etchings. They're kind of hand watercolored on top of the etching. Okay. But yeah, I don't. Um, Did you do the original I don't tend etching? To sell. It's a photo etching. Oh, okay, great. Um, but I have done some hand drawn etchings. Um, I used to draw more than I do now. But I tend to now do digital drawings, so if I've got an idea for a work, I will digitally mock it up first, um, and I've become more adept at that, really. The more I draw, the better I get, but I get out of practice with drawing. Sure. But I will definitely, if I'm working on, a, on taxidermy, I will you, I'll quite often draw the leg or the wing or something as I'm doing it, but not, not as an artwork. Okay. Um, so the current exhibition is a collaboration, what made you want to actually go into working with somebody else so wholly? Well, it surprised me that I did, actually. I'd never wanted to collaborate before. I always felt like, totally incorrectly, I think I felt like it would be something of a compromise to collaborate. Or I, I guess I thought if the right artist came along, I would. But I'd increasingly been feeling quite kind of lonely in the studio, like not really enjoying working alone. Mm-hmm. And having to make all the decisions myself, that's quite... It gets really wearing when you're the only one. Well, ultimately, everything's always, every decision that's made is on your head. So if you've got a show, you have to decide how high something goes, what, how to light it, what colour to have the wall, just all these tiny... There's so many decisions that go into it. And I often just want someone... I mean, I'll, I'll maybe talk to my boyfriend, who's an artist, about those things. But I, I started to crave someone to share those responsibilities with. And did and you enjoy it? Was it suitable? Were you craving the right really thing? It was really good. It just came at the right time. Um, Robert had started to do some interning for me while he was still studying a couple of years ago. And um, I really liked him and I liked his work. And I, well, his work was so different to mine and it was very, it's very kind of fresh and modern, his work. 
Um, and a lot of the people who approach me to do internships are, um, they're already doing taxidermy or sometimes they're doing work that's maybe a little derivative of my own and it's not something that I feel like I can kind of add anything to anyway. Sure. And his was so different. I felt like the two of us together could do something really novel and, and at that time we were asked by a Mark Hicks who owns the Trampshed and Hicks Gallery. He wanted to start a new programme of events where a more established artist would work with a younger artist. Sure. And he asked me to work with someone else but I said, actually, I would rather work with Robert. Um, and he said, that's fine. So we started doing stuff together. And this is sort of, it, it, from, from my eyes, it looks like you've gone back to a more naturalistic representation of your, of your snakes. Yeah, but with one through or two. abstraction with his uh, modern observations about life. So there are upturned freezers and frankfurters and rucksacks and milk bottles. And yeah, well, he, um, his work only existed on Instagram before... We started working together. He, he made that conscious decision to do that to start with. And then by the time he graduated with an MA, I think he just started to think about doing sculptures, particularly after working with me, because he said he felt he'd been doing a lot of time kind of manipulating his own body on a computer. Mm-hmm. And suddenly he was in a basement skinning real animals and physically manipulating them. And he said that the two were so different. Is that picture over there, the square one with the... Is yeah. that a coral snake? Uh, it's a milk snake. Milk snake. Um, and they're the non-venomous versions of the coral snake. Oh, I don't know. It sounds like you know more about snakes than I do. I don't know the coral snake, actually. (laughs) It's actually, it's this, see that snake there? Okay, so that's the same one. That's the same one. But I started, I I am right at the beginning of doing a series of photographs of things in the process of being skinned because they do come up with some, you get these beautiful still lives appear while you're working. I find them beautiful. I mean, some people probably find them a bit gruesome, but I think that... Did he Instagram that photo? It being no, square. no, and that That's was that was we put it, we made it square specifically to match his pictures. That is just a photograph that I took um, that I would like to do something with in the future. And I almost didn't show that in this exhibition because that's kind of solely my work. Sure. But we were showing solely his, his work, work in the pictures there, which were the things that he'd been doing on Instagram. Well, it's, it, and we through those two photos, make... through the snake in preparation and through him over yeah. there with anim- uh, with cartoon-drawn yeah. computer-digitised sausages all over his body, you then have in the middle of the room the boa exactly. constrictor covered with the sausages and you have the... That, which was the reason to put it there. It was really... They're, they're kind of an explanation, a sort of storyboard almost, of, of how we came to work together and how we came up with the things that we did. So it was almost like Robert was sort of making an intervention on my work mm-hmm. by coming and putting, like making three-dimensional models of his computer drawings, which are these kind of what you call frankfurters. That we, that we don't really have a, a word for them, but they are the cast. They're not, they're not sausages, are they? Well, no, they are cast in sausage skins. We, he definitely doesn't think of them as sausages, but they are cast inside sausage skins. Um, to make that, so that he pours plaster inside the sausage skin, and then we kind of would, squeeze them about. Yeah, twist them into whichever formation we needed them to dry in, and then leave them there. Um, One of the things I saw either on his or your Instagram page was was the boa constrictor structure without the snake there, which was kind of yeah. fun to see that the sausages are held, the sausages of commas are yeah. held in place uh, without the snake. It remi- yeah, without getting too arts, it reminded me of uh, Rachel White Reed and the ne- negative space that something's yeah. left behind. It was quite fun seeing the, the snake going through. No, I mean, the process, the, 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 there's so many amazing sights in the process of taxidermy, actually. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to do something with that. And the next work that I'm making is I'm, it's, a, it's to do with veneers kind of figuratively in terms of like etiquette and manners and the way that we have a, a veneer socially. 
and veneers literally in the way that we will have a counter in a kitchen that's actually really cheap chipboard but it's covered in something like very very thin bit of marble or something to uh-huh. make it look expensive and uh, the work that I'm embarking on next is kind of about that and I, I feel like these this peeling back of the skin of the kind of veneer so that you can see what's underneath it um, that you get when you're skinning an animal particularly a snake um, make for quite good accompaniments to my new sculptures. That sounds fascinating. Is that going to be reptilian again, or uh, are you going to play a bit more? I'm not sure. Mostly, probably. But I'm going to be. Uh, there'll be a lot of different materials in it. I'm working with concrete and um, and chipboard and like this um, strand board that you get, where you get all this little mesh of wood mm-hmm. compacted together. I love working with very cheap materials next to very expensive ones, and veneers are perfect in that respect for me, but they also say something about the body, and I think about the way that we have a, we project a particular image, or we maybe spend a lot of money kind of um, pampering ourselves, or trying to look good, or doing our hair, or makeup, or having surgery, yeah. just to disguise the fact that the body underneath is, is getting old and dying. <laughs> This might sound like a very obvious question, but how long do we have to wait before we can see that exhibition? Like how long does it take to create? Well, it's not so much about that. It's more about firming something up with a gallery and having that in place. I think as soon as I do that, then it can take anything from a few months to a year, depending on how much I want to make. Once I have a deadline, I'm quite good at working to it. But I'm hoping, 2019, I'm hoping. Okay, well, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to see it. Just to finish off, we have three questions that we ask everybody who comes on to the podcast. Question one... If you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? I would probably go... Where we went somewhere in the country, in the Slad Valley, and the walks there are just amazing. And I haven't... I was either pregnant or with a little baby since we moved in there, and I've been dying to just go for a very, very long walk through there, or even a run, actually, with my dog. We haven't, I haven't Bruce, quite managed to Bruce do... Bruce get to come Bruce, Well, maybe not if I'm having a run. Bruce definitely comes on some of the walks, but I, what I really want to do is go... What I can't do with the children is like a sort of five, six hour walk, which is something I'd love to do. So I would probably just get someone to take the kids for the day and, and walk through the Slad Valley. Fantastic. Uh, question two. Should we colonise the moon? Oh, if we can make it comfortable enough, I suppose. <laughs> why, why not? I don't take some veneer furniture up <laughs> A lot of people are trying, wanting to leave this country now, aren't they, with Brexit. Maybe that would be the place to go. And thirdly, which species would you bring back from extinction? Well, on behalf of my son, who's pretty obsessed with them at the moment, probably a dinosaur, I think, so he'd get to see one in the flesh. I don't think he yet knows that, they, that we can't... I'm not going to... I think he thinks I'm going to take him to a zoo and see one one day, and I'm going to have to break it to him that they actually don't exist anymore. <laughs> well, maybe you could create them. Maybe that's the exhibition after the next one, maybe. try and sort of make, recreate life-size dinosaurs again. Polly, it's genuinely been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, so yeah, you've been listening to the incoherent ramblings of me um, and the eloquence of my wonderful guest Polly Morgan. You can go to our website on www.pollymorgan.co.uk. You're on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, not, uh, not Twitter. I think I am on Twitter, but I'm, no, I'm never on Twitter. Okay. Well, go so don't go, go, to Twitter. Twitter. go to Instagram, and I'm Polly Morgan artist on Instagram. Perfect. And you can follow us as always on Trees of Crowd Pod. <laughs> I'd like to thank Polly hugely for her time and for showing us around her exhibition. Thanks to to baby Bruce for lending us his fantastic mother and for filling his nappy at the halfway point in utter silence. Thanks to all of the Hicks Gallery for letting us record our podcast on site, where Polly and Robert's exhibition is on until the 7th of April. 
Apologies for the quality of the sound on that recording. Um, we were fighting against an air conditioner for a lot of it, but if you've got to this part, it meant that you found the content exhilarating enough to put up with that. We're a new podcast, and we have a few teething problems, but keep paying attention and we'll get that sorted. Please follow us on Twitter at TreesAcrowdPod. Check out our blog on the website at TreesAcrowd.fm. And as usual, thanks to everyone at Right Angles, and there'll be a brand new episode in a fortnight. Thanks for listening. <laughs>